Uh, on the back of your prayer bulletin, there is the outline. Well, not really much of an outline, actually. It's just a bunch of bullet points. But anyway, and uh, that's what we're going to do tonight. So Brother Doug's coming down the middle aisle. I'd love for you to follow along if you could. And if you'd like to do so, that'll kind of uh, keep us on pace. And you can see where we're going, where we've been, all those good things. All right? So get his attention if you don't have a prayer bulletin as we delve back into Hebrews chapter number 3. Real quick, not going to do much review tonight. And so and just kind of springboard us in, and we'll get into verses 17 through 19. So we'll have a lot to cover tonight as we look into this chapter. But remember, as we looked into verses 1 through 6, we saw several things. Number one, we saw that supplication. He says, consider Christ. Look to Christ. Keep your eyes on him. Number two, we saw a similarity as he now is comparing him to Moses and showing that he is superior and uh, supreme to him as he has other things. And so we saw that they were both faithful. So he starts with that similarity. Then he gets to the separation, right? Though Moses faithfully led the house, Jesus Christ obviously not only leads, but he made the house. And uh, uh, we are of his household. Number we saw this, the summit, Moses was a servant while Jesus Christ is the son. And son is for life. Servants come and go and so forth. And Jesus Christ is the son. So just that comparison made uh, in the appeal uh, to the um, uh, Jew and to all people, in fact, but specifically to the Jew who was wavering or the Jew who was tempted to go back to Judaism and things there. Then we came to number five. We saw this, the significance. We are Christ's household and it is evidence in our faithful determination. And so that's where we left off, and that is the springboard as we go forward. Our, our salvation-confirming determination was seen in two things. You remember us pointing this out. Number one, it's witness in our humble boldness, okay? That word confidence, uh, it, it means boldness here in the passage. I like the fact we said it refers to our, our freedom to open our mouths, okay? I think of some of the military institutions and other places where you could not speak until you had permission to speak, and uh, permission, permission to speak. Sir, and uh, reality was uh, here in this that you and I have been given boldness in Christ, and we, we applied it and understood it as the rest of Hebrews says. You and I have the boldness to come before the throne of grace. You know, did you pray today? Don't answer it. I hope you did. Well, you, uh, you exercised your boldness you had in Jesus Christ. You went before God and you spoke to God the Father in prayer. You were able to bring your supplications and your requests. You praised him, and so you were able to speak in front of him. We also talked about later on in Hebrews, it talks about the boldness to enter into the Holy of Holies and uh, into the very presence of God we've been ushered into. That boldness that we had, and we talked about it, that's not rooted in anything you and I have accomplished, nothing that you and I have gained for ourselves. We have not merited that in any way. It is simply the reality that it's rooted in Christ alone. And it's through him that we have that boldness. Now, this is crucial because it comes to play in the next section and how it ought to play out in our lives, okay? Then secondly, we saw that it's witness in our hope-based boastfulness, okay? The Greek term for the, uh, the word translated as rejoicing means boasting, and it's a happy boast. It's not that we simply endure life, we can enjoy life. May I put it this way, and this is appropriate for what we'll see tonight in the passage we'll look at, that the journey of life can be enjoyed when you know Christ. You can have a boastful happiness. You can rejoice every step of the way in the journey. And we'll see that tonight where the Jews and the illustration that we see, they really didn't do that. 
And you and I have that ability to do so through Jesus Christ. We said it was a joyous rejoicing, uh, springing from the fact that in Jesus Christ I know I am saved and that I'm on my way to heaven. We made this statement, and, and again, we'll finish with these as far as our review. He's not burdened by the past. The, the Christian who's in Christ and has this, this hope-filled boastfulness, uh, who has uh, this boldness, this humble boldness, he is not burdened by the past. He is not threatened by the present, nor is he fearful of the future. But rather, he is living in the future today looking for the blessed hope of our Lord's return. In other words, he is standing and acting on the promises of God. Every day he is clinging to a promise of God, and he gets out of bed, and he walks, and he, he makes decisions. He lives that day based on the very promises of God. He is acting in light of the promises of God. He's not deterred. He has a faithful determination. He or she, every day, I'm going to live for the Lord. I can do so in his strength and his power. And that is evidenced of our salvations or evidence of it. It proves the reality of that, as we saw last week. Okay? Now, it bears relevance on the rest of the passage. So let's look at verse 7. We'll read down through verse 11, if you will. Chapter 3 of Hebrews, verse 7. Wherefore, and then we have this huge parenthetical phrase. Okay? Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and said they do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest." Okay, let's uh, immediately recognize a couple things. First of all, the parenthetical phrase. This is, he inserts it, right? Uh, and uh, he says something. So first of all, we realize, and many of you could probably see whether it be your middle column or somewhere else, he is quoting something. He is quoting Psalms 95, interestingly, the same number of verses, okay? It's verses 7 through 11. So he's quoting that here. So let's look there. Let's keep our spot here because obviously we'll be right back. Psalm chapter 95, we'll look at verses 7 through 11, and they are obviously familiar to or similar to what we just read in Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through 11. Look with me, if you will, or just listen. Psalm chapter 95, verses 7, 7 following. For he is our God, and we the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, here's where the quote starts, harden not your heart as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work, 40 years long was I agreed with this generation and said, it is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Now it's interesting that it's probably one of the more word-for-word -word quotes of the Old Testament in the New Testament that we've come across. And sometimes you just, some of the words are a little bit different and so forth. That's almost a verbatim and certainly very close at the very least. And so it's quite interesting. Now here's what's amazing, another amazing aspect about it we want to know. In Hebrews chapter 3, to whom does he credit with authoring Psalm chapter 95? Well, here in Hebrews chapter 3, he doesn't say it's David. He doesn't say it's anybody else. Who does he say? It's the Holy Ghost. This is the Holy Ghost. This is the Holy. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith. Now, what's the significance of that? Can I just tell you, it's one of the clearest demonstrations of the divine inspiration of God's Word. 
He didn't credit the, the author, the psalmist, or whoever wrote Psalm 95. No, he said, listen, this is the Holy Spirit. It is God himself giving an account. It is God's words. It is God saying, here's what happened. Here's the firsthand account of what took place there. Now, we could look to First Peter, and we could talk about how the Holy Spirit moved the men of old to write things and so forth. But here's just a clear, I, I love that Paul answered this. He says, listen, don't you forget, the Holy Spirit wrote the Old Testament just like he wrote the New Testament. He used men and women as authors, certainly the human hand, but this is the very word of God. And you ought to sit up and you ought to take note because this is from God. I love it that he inserts that there in this. Now, uh, he also goes on as we see, uh, uh, we look at the Old Testament passage in that he quoted. And so he starts out this passage with a familiar illustration. And I changed this word in your outline because I liked it better after we printed your outlines. Not to get, but to gain. I like that word better. To gain their attention. Okay? To gain their attention. So he uses something they're familiar with to gain their attention. Something that the reader, the, the one that he is appealing to, the one that he is trying to convince, the, the one he is trying to exhort would be at least on some level familiar with. And so we often will have a, a message or a sermon where we start with an illustration to kind of hook people to get their attention, whatever the case may be. And so the fact is this. He does that and this illustration they can identify with at least from a historical knowledge. They know about it. This day of provocation where where the people showed great unbelief in what God had promised and what God had said, okay? So he's appealing to both the unbeliever on one level and the believer on another level, okay? Let's back up and remind ourselves, he's already picked up. He's already well aware that there's an incredible pool by Judaism. It's pulling back those Jews that have trusted in Christ. And boy, they've trusted in Christ, but it's tempting them to look back, as we talked about now several weeks. It's tempting them to look back. Yes, you've trusted in Christ, but come back to circumcision and come back to this and, and add this to it and maintain, make sure you maintain the law and follow it. And so it has this pull on them. Those who have already trusted in Christ are saved. It obviously also has a pull in those who are kind of caught in between. They've heard some of the evidence. They've heard of this Jesus Christ, and yet they, they haven't come to the point where they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They're unbelievers. They're, they're people who aren't saved, and so they haven't really trusted in Christ, but they see the validity of it. They understand what he's saying and what Christ is as Paul presents it, but boy, Judaism just pulling them back, that heritage and their lineage and everything else. And so he's addressing both of these groups, appealing to both of them but at the same time my goodness you know what he's also saying in this passage you better hurry up there's not much time left it, it, there's no time to waste either for the unbeliever who has yet to put their faith and trust in jesus christ and keeps looking and trusting in and the the old testament incomplete revelation or the believer that has trusted in christ but is not sold out the believer that's not 100% committed and dedicated to who Christ is, and, and shall we put it this way in New Testament terms, the believer who has trusted in Christ but is not working at making him Lord of their life. The New Testament believer that has yet to say, okay, he is to be my everything, he, I'm to follow him in everything, he is to be the Lord of my life. So that person kind of caught in between, says, listen, there's no time to waste. You, you've got to make that decision and trust him in everything to live by faith on a daily basis faith in your lord and so as that's the case we get the the second big warning of hebrews we looked at them on a sunday one time we talked about all of these five or so 
big warnings or exhortations in Hebrews. We've already covered one, chapter 2, the beginning there, and we'll allude to it here in a moment. This is the second big one. What is it? Well, it's the simple reality that we are called not to harden our hearts through lack of belief. Don't harden your hearts through lack of belief. So he gives the illustration, chapter 7 through 11. We'll talk a little bit more about the details of that illustration. But look at verse number 12. Verse number 12 of chapter 3. Take heed, and that sounds familiar. Take heed, brethren, so brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Okay? Verse 13, but exhort one another daily, while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the de deceitfulness of sin. Now, you put that together, and boy, we have this, this challenge to take heed, don't harden your heart. Don't allow that to happen and allow it to produce the unbelief. Remember chapter 2's challenge was what? Give the more earnest heed that you don't neglect so great a salvation. You remember that? We studied that. So that was kind of the first big warning, exhortation. Now we get to the second one and take heed. Don't let your heart get hardened and, and then the unbelief kind of grow there and, and take root. Okay. So in other words, make sure there's no unbelief or disbelief in your heart. It's interesting to note, the word as you see here, and we just read it, uh, that word departing uh, there in verse number 12, in departing from the living God. It's an interesting Greek word. It's actually the Greek word from which we derive our English word apostasy, okay? A falling away. A fall, having been exposed and embracing the truth at some point, but afterwards turning away from it, willingly turning away from it, okay? And uh, uh, that's an important thing to know. See, for the believer, it's not an aspect of unbelief. It's more of disbelief. I, I understand what God wants. I understand what God says. And I, I understand what God, what God says how I should act, but I, I just don't believe that's the best way. I don't believe the outcome's going to be there. I don't believe. It's more disbelief than unbelief. Typically, unbelief speaks to ignorance, while disbelief speaks to a willfulness to not embrace it, to not accept it, to not act upon it. I, I'm not going to embrace that. I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not going to follow through. And so um, we think, to put it bluntly, we could say this. It is an unwillingness to act in faith or trust. It's an unwillingness to act in faith or in trust. To, uh, refusal to live by faith. And obviously, hand in hand goes that hardening of one's heart. Now, now here's the point. Don't miss it. Did you catch that God says they have erred in their heart? What was the error of their heart? Well, he tells us four different times in this passage. This current thought continues from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way into chapter 4 and uh, several verses, over a dozen or so into chapter 4. We obviously won't get into all of it tonight. But four different times, in fact, the verses, verse 7, Okay, and eight, put it together, verse 13, verse 15, verse 7 of chapter 4, all speak of what? Hardening one's heart. When he says they do err in their heart, we are reminded that who sees the heart? God does. In each one of us, we can sit in a pew and we can call ourselves a Christian and we can even open our Bibles. But the question is this, is your heart softened to the word of God? Is it ready to receive it and then in response to act and live by faith to take it in? And, or is it hardened? It's not going to see that. In other words, is it full of disbelief? In my heart, I, okay, I, 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 God, I see what you're saying, but I don't think I can do that. I don't think I want to do that. I, and boy, we can hear it preached. We can hear it taught. Someone can give us good biblical counsel. 
Uh, we can read it, and the Holy Spirit can prick our hearts. But unless our heart is softened, it's uh, that contrite heart the Old Testament speaks of. A heart that's ready to receive as opposed to a hardened heart. Uh, you, can't per- you can't get through it. You can't get in it. You can't, nothing's going to get through that hardened heart. He says, listen, this is the error of their heart. Now, here's what's also interesting about it. He said, listen, there is a great urgency, a huge urgency to heed this. To, to ensure that on a daily basis, you and I aren't hardening our hearts, hardening our hearts to something that God wants you and I to do. Maybe it's to witness of somebody. Maybe it's some aspect of our Christian maturity, maturation process, our Christian growth. All right, I ought to speak nicer to my wife. I ought to be kinder to my husband. I ought to not think that thought. I ought not to speak like that. And so the Holy Spirit has pricked our hearts, and we've hardened our hearts to it. And the Holy Spirit, through this passage, says, listen, be careful. Don't harden your heart to what God is saying to you. You come into this building, this auditorium, you open God's word, your heart better be softened and malleable and ready to to allow God to go to work and mold you and to do what he needs to do to grow you into the Christian he wants you to be. And the key to that is don't take heed. Don't let your heart be hardened through what? Disbelief, unbelief, lack of faith in God Then okay, I can trust him with that. I can trust him with this. And I can trust him with this. I, I can take it to him. I, I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to live by faith. Now, the urgency is seen in a word that is repeated in verse 7, verse 13, verse 15, and verse 7 of chapter 4. It's a word, or you might say two words, as it is in this old English. You see what it is? It's the word today. Today. Verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if ye will hear. Verse number 13, but exhort one another, what? Daily, and then he goes on, while it is called today. Verse number 15, while it is said, today, you will hear his voice. Verse 7 of chapter 4, again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, today. Now, this is great and interesting. This is an urgency. Now, you and I both know when he refers to today in such a manner, it is not speaking about just a 24-hour period, okay? All right, I got 24 hours to do what God said, or the the axe is going to fall. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying today. It is literally meaning what? Right now. Right now, in this moment, you need to heed him. You need to, don't harden your heart. Open it to God, soften it, receive what he has to say. See, once God's truth and his word are given and presented, you know the reality is this, we never know how long we will have to act upon it. We never know how long we have to make the decision to say, all right, I need that. Yes, God, I, I, I know you're speaking to me. I know, it's, I know you want me to do something in response to your word. We never know how much time we will have. You see, to harden our hearts, even for a moment, is both foolish and dangerous. Foolish and dangerous. It's why in, uh, there in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, in the second part of verse 2, he says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold what? Now is the day of salvation. Now don't put it off. Don't harden your heart. You've heard the truths. You, you've been presented to it. Whether it's the truths of salvation or whether it's the truths of, of growth that you and I need as believers, don't push it off. Don't push it to the back burners. we like to say here in America. Don't, don't do that. Embrace it. Listen. Heed it. Act upon it. Live by faith. 
In his early years of ministry, D.L. Moody, great preacher, often at the end of his sermon, uh, early on, and uh, probably not every time, but often he would say something to the effect, okay, I, I want you to take this, go home, and think about what I said. So he dismissed a congregation, and often in multi-night meetings, he would do so. And he'd say, okay, go, I want you to take it, I want you to go home, and I want you to think about what I said. There was one night that he was preaching in Chicago, and he said the same thing. And in fact, he said specifically this. He said, go, take it, go home, think about it, come back tomorrow, ready to make a decision. And in that, he had presented some of the proofs, the evidence of Christ, and why someone should put their faith and trust in them, among other things, even to Christians and so forth. But he dismissed them, and he said, okay, I want you to go home, I want you to think about it, I want you to come back tomorrow, ready to make a decision. Well, that night, has gone down in history. It is the night of the Chicago fire. And there are several in his congregation who were in that meeting who died that night. From that day forward, D.L. Moody never sent people away to think about the claims of Christ and make a decision. He said, today is the day of salvation. You need to think about it today. My friend, one of the impetus and one of the themes of this passage is don't wait. An unbeliever who says, you know, on my deathbed, I'll trust in Christ. You know, later on, I'll, I'll really consider spiritual things. Don't do that. Don't put it off. The believer that says, you know, and, and we've all heard him. We've all talked to him. And sometimes it's a teenager. Sometimes it's a college age. Even sometimes it's a middle-aged person who has too busy in life and too much going on. You know what? Later on, when the kids are out of the house, I'll get busy. I'll get serious about being busy for God. I'll, I'll get serious about following God. You know what God says to that? Hear my voice today. Take heed, don't harden your heart, don't put off until tomorrow what you ought to do today. Take heed, harden not your heart in that lack of belief. Because the reality is this, if you and I truly believe that God is all that he says he is and that God will do all that he says he will do, we would take him at his word all the time. Is that not correct? If we truly believe he is all that he says he is, that he'll do all that he says he'll do, we would take him at his word all of the time. We'd live by faith. In this book, specifically his words, live by faith in our God. You see, that term today, it, it represents the idea of the current or present moment of God's grace. Of God's grace. The door is open, if we may put it that way. And we don't know how long that time of grace will be. There's no time to waste in heeding the word of God and trusting in that. No time to waste to live by faith for either the unbeliever or the believer. Now, this Old Testament illustration is, is obviously very powerful. It's very poignant, something the Jews would have been very familiar with. And so Paul goes back to it in verse 15. You may have caught that. Look at verse 15, if you will. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. Now, immediately, we may think, well, why is he repeating this? Well, he'll get to some questions of application. Notice what he says. Verse 16, for some, when they had heard, did provoke. Now, I, I think this is an interesting verse, 16. How be it not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. All right, so he, he's specifying there's a couple, there's a few there that, that didn't act in unbelief. We certainly know Joshua and Caleb and, and Moses. But look at verse 17. But with whom was he grieved 40 years? 
Was it not with them that had sin? That's the sin of unbelief. That's the sin of lack of obedience and, and walking by faith. Whose carcasses fell in the wilderness. That's rather descriptive. Verse 18. And to whom swear he that they should not enter his rest, but to them that believe not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Okay, now, great passage. He, he narrows it down a little bit, adds a little more, tweaks it a little bit, and then adds some supplemental things. Okay, so first thing we want to see is in this passage, and certainly in the story uh, that he brings, we have three places that are referenced in one way or the other. Okay, some of them are mentioned specifically. Some of them are mentioned with other names for them. First of all, we see Egypt, right? We just read that a moment ago here for some uh, out of Egypt by Moses, verse number 16. Okay, we also read, and I believe it's back in verse number uh, 8. Yes, it is. Verse number 8, the wilderness, right? And then we read of the land of Canaan. Now, that's not, uh, if I'm not mistaken, not specifically mentioned here, but it is referred to as the land of rest, the place of rest in this passage. It's certainly alluded to here. Okay, so let's talk about these three places for a moment. First of all, when we think of Egypt, most of us understand that Egypt represents the world, specifically our sinful past existence in it. In other words, when we were not of heaven, we were of the world. We're not citizens of heaven before we trusted Christ. We were citizens of this world, and certainly in that sense. And uh, the fact is God delivered Israel out of Egypt. You remember the story, we won't go into it too much, but it is good for the illustration that he uses. The blood was applied to the door uh, post in the top, and uh, that signified that that family, when the, uh, when, uh, the death angel came through and all the firstborn were killed, it signified that they were what? Under the blood, and they were passed over, hence the Passover. And so uh, they were delivered in that sense, they were spared, and then God took them out miraculously through the Red Sea on dry ground, and completely out of Egypt. And God delivered them. It, it really is a great picture of what God has done for us in salvation. Amen. Aren't you thankful tonight that you're under the blood? Aren't you grateful that God delivered you in a miraculous way? We'll, we'll allude to it here in a moment, okay? So that is Egypt. We understand what that represents. Now, the promised land or the land of Canaan. Now, we're going to skip around on, on our uh, outline here, so don't think that I'm skipping some blanks. We're actually going to go down a couple, then go back up and so forth and talk about some of these, okay? But let's understand in this moment, the promised land, the land of Canaan, was that place of rest, the ultimate, don't miss it, earthly destination for Israel, okay? It's a place of inheritance and blessing. Now, here's the point that I want to make right now, okay? There's no blanks to fill in. I'll let you know when we get to them, okay? So here's the point. God didn't just save Israel from Egypt. He saved them to lead them to the promised land. Okay, now there's a great truth there because sometimes we get caught up and, oh yeah, I'm just saved. And we think that's all there is to the Christian life. Can I tell you, God didn't, didn't <laughs> deliver Israel just to deliver them. He delivered them to, <laughs> to deliver them to the land of Canaan, the promised land. To bring them to that place that he had promised them. See, God intended them to be led out of Egypt and led into the land of Canaan. That's exactly the same thing for us. You know, God doesn't want us just doesn't want to just save us from our sin and eternity in hell. You know what he wants to do? He wants to save us to a life of righteousness. He wants us to live righteously. He, that's what he saved us to. There's a, something he saved us to. And certainly then likewise, he wants to lead us uh, to an eternity in heaven with him. So never forget the goal and the purpose in that. Because it plays into the rest of what we'll see in this passage. You know, in between Egypt and Canaan, though, there's a place called what? 
the wilderness. The wilderness. And you see, I'll ask you this. When they were in the wilderness, were they out of Egypt? Yeah, sure they were. They're under the blood, and really, after what had transpired in the closing of the Red Sea, there's no going back. There's no way for them to return, even though in their unbelief, they talked about it just three days out. They're, they're looking back and saying, oh, man, we, we missed the Egyptian buffet. We want to go back there and eat. We missed this, and we missed that. Oh, that we could go back there. And boy, that unbelief did that. Their, their unbelief then, and their disbelief, honestly, caused them, now don't miss this, to not enter into everything that God wanted for them, that God had intended for them. And that's what plays out in this, uh, this uh, wilderness. God had much uh, uh, fulfillment of promise, many blessings awaiting them there in the promised land. And it's what happens, sadly, to many Christians. Fail to, in their faith uh, in God's ability to lead them. They willfully refuse to walk by faith. They rebel against God through their disbelief, just as they, uh, the Israelites did during their journey from Egypt to Canaan. And it culminated in their refusal to believe in God and his promises in the face of what? Well, the day of provocation, it says. What's the day of provocation? It's the time that those spies came back and ten were bad and two were good. They came back with this report, and, and in the face of that, the generation said, the nation said, no, we're not, I, no, we can't do that. And it, it's really unfathomable, isn't it? Because they come back and says, listen, they, those cities have some, some big walls. Uh, there's some really big guys in there, some giants. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. But it's unfathomable because here are people who, guess what? They saw an entire river turn to blood. They saw frogs everywhere. They saw a Red Sea at flood stage during that time, we believe, parted, dry land appear. They get all the way across. The Egyptians and Pharaoh go into it. The pursuing army, the entire pursuing army, get covered with water and are killed. They see the entire nation of Egypt decimated by every firstborn killed on a single night and yet they were spared if they had the blood around those posts and here they stand on the threshold of the promised land the place of inheritance the place of of, of great blessing and they get a little report about a few giants and some walled cities and what happened their hearts are hardened you know, those spies came back, and we all were well aware what transpired in that, right? They came back and said, hey, we, we aren't able to do that. What's interesting, though, haven't we seen the same thing in our lives? What I mean by that is simply this. You see, friend, you and I, you and I would have never escaped hell and gained heaven but for the miraculous event of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. Paying the penalty for your sins and for mine. The blood of Jesus Christ applied to our account. You know, likewise, you and I would have never been delivered from that which enslaved us. See, the picture of the Egyptians enslaving the Israelites, great picture of you and I enslaved in our sin and, and death by that. Uh, the wages of sin is death. Therefore, death had you and I in a chokehold that it wasn't going to let go. 
But Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, did what you and I could not do for ourselves. He paid the penalty so you and I could go free. Furthermore, you know what's pretty amazing as we think about it? He, he's made a way for sinners where there was no way. The entirety of the human race, we're standing on the shore of heaven, and there's no way for us to gain there, but Jesus Christ comes along, and may I just say from illustration's sake, you know what Jesus Christ did? He parted the waters. He made a clean path for you and I to gain heaven through what he did, just like that Red Sea. You know what's even better? When Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, he defeated our enemies, our unconquerable foes, once and for all. Never to have any power over us again. I can just imagine some of those Egyptians as they look, and we, we know the song of Miriam, and we know what Moses proclaimed, and some of those Israelites looking back on the Red Sea, and things of the, the Egyptian army were probably floating there, maybe even bodies and things, and they're looking back, and I guarantee you at least one of them said this, we'll never see them again. They'll never bother us again. God took care of them. Can I tell you right now, oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? It's lost it. There's no sting. It holds nothing over us, no power whatsoever. And so in the same way, you and I stand in the wilderness, and we have a choice. Will we go on in faith, or will we choose to stay in the wilderness through what? Disbelief. Not living by faith, but by disbelief. We'll harden our hearts to what God says. And so... I just put it this way, and this is where we're going to jump down a few blanks. There are really two types of Christians, aren't there? There's what we might call wilderness Christians, and there are Canaan Christians. Wilderness Christians and Canaan Christians. There are victorious Christians who live by faith and trust in Christ and see victory. There are defeated Christians, those who do not walk by faith. They walk by sight, and they walk in their own power. And so it begs the question tonight, as you and I consider the illustration and the, the impetus of this passage, which one are you? Do you think you would be classified by God in heaven, part of that wilderness group? Yeah, you may be saved, and you've been delivered from Egypt. Boy, you got in the wilderness of life, the journey of life, and boy, you really aren't living by faith. When it comes to this area of your life and this area of your life, you, you really aren't putting into practice the thing that God says. You're not living by faith. You're, you're kind of a wilderness Christian. You're not like Caleb and Joshua who stood on the end and said, let's go. We can do this. Through God, we're going we're, we're to trust him because he promised it. It's reality that there are believers who are growing. The passage shows that there are believers who are growing in faith because why? They are living by faith. And there are believers who are failing in disbelief and not growing. What's amazing about the time of the wilderness is that God did show himself to be a loving, gracious, caring God. He evidenced it by many miracles, gracious miracles. He provided them daily. To think, and the manna, right? Maybe it was angel food cake. Who knows? Okay, the manna. Okay, it really wasn't. But anyway, all right. The manna that was provided time and time again. What about the meat that was provided on occasion? What about the pillar of the cloud by day and a fire by night? What about the protection from all those enemies that God gave them there in the wilderness? What about the Clothes that never wore out. I think that's the greatest part of it. Now think about it. This is the wilderness. They're not acting by faith. They're not living right. There is some disbelief, and yet our God is still gracious to them. They still find him faithful, though they have forfeited, or more importantly, 
they have chosen not to live by faith and step out by faith and follow God and experience the blessings of the inheritance of what God has promised in the land of Canaan. You see, he's still watching over them. But after their rebellion on that day of provocation, after their disbelief and action upon hearing the spies' report, you know what that wilderness is? Now we jump back up to the blanks there. What does the wilderness represent? It literally represents an experience, a time of defeat and shame. It was a miserable experience of not enjoying what God wanted them to have, missing out. You ever as a parent... (laughs) have one of your children, there's something they're looking forward to and something you've been planning to do or whatever the case may be, and because of their behavior, their lack of obedience, whatever it is, hey, you're going to miss it. You can't go. You're not going to be able to do that. Now, that's not cruel parenting. That's reality. In fact, I think it's good training because it flows with Scripture. Literally, that's what's transpiring here. God in heaven said, listen, okay, you don't believe me. You're not taking me out my word. You're not living by faith in me. And, and it's unfathomable because of what I've already shown you, what I've already displayed. And so you're not going to do that. Then you're going to go back in the wilderness. You're going to spend a whole generation there. In fact, he mentions, what, 40 years. You're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness, and it's going to be just shame and defeat. It's going to be a miserable existence. We'll speak more of it here in a moment and what that thing. But I like what verse 9 says. Look at verse 9 again here in chapter number 3, verse number 9. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, know this is a statement, saw my works 40 years. That is a very powerful and interesting statement. You see, the power and ability that God would show later on when the next generation entered the land, what kind of power was that? Well, probably the greatest city in the land of Canaan was what? Jericho. And what did they do to conquer Jericho? They marched around it, blew some trumpets, and God took care of Jericho. The walls came tumbling down. Later on, God would do things amazing. Small numbers defeat large numbers. God would deliver people in their hands. He would cause our enemies and armies to fight against each other, run before the Israelites. Uh, amazing power and ability on display. But here's what's, what, what's so sad. During the 40 years in the wilderness, you know what that generation saw? They saw water from a rock. They, they saw God provide manna. They saw all these wonderful miracles of God, the power of God on display. But it wasn't what God had wanted. God wanted to show them what he could do in the promised land. God wanted them to reap the blessings and the, the inheritance, the things in here. Yeah, he still showed up in the wilderness, but that's not at all what God wanted for them. That was not God's best. That was not what God had intended originally. And you know what the fact is, as those spies came back, they said, we are not able. But Moses and Caleb and Joshua, they had come back and they said, what? We are able because our God is more than capable. And all through the next 40 years, you know what they probably realized? Yeah. Those giants would have been nothing before God. Those big walled cities, man, if we had only walked by faith, if we only trusted in him, we wouldn't be experienced this wilderness and defeat. And You know, the fact is this. Is it possible? And here's a great truth from this passage. Is it possible for someone to be a child of God but not grow much, live a life of defeat more than victory as God would intend? Sure, if a Christian doesn't walk by faith. They don't walk by faith. 
They hardened their heart. You see, the Jews there in the wilderness, and God said what? They do always or always err in their heart. I told them this, and boy, their heart was hardened. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't hear it. They wouldn't have faith in it. All right, God, you promised us this, and uh, you'd take us to land flowing with milk and honey. All right, God, no, no. They hardened their heart to that. They wouldn't embrace that truth, and the promise is they hardened their heart. They refused to walk by faith, and, and it is a damning statement. You know what he says? They have not known my ways. You remember reading that? Verse 11, I think it is. They, they have not known my ways. Literally, you know what he's saying? If they had known my ways, they would have known that where they were unable, I am more than capable. How in the world are we going to stand between, before giants that we are grasshoppers in their sight? You know how you're going to do it? Because you have God on your side. He is more than capable. How are we going to tear down these walls? How are we ever going to get these fenced cities? How are we ever going to conquer this land? Oh, yes, you're right. You're not capable. You are unable, but God sure is capable. It's a great truth that we see play out throughout this passage. Real quick, I'll share one more thing. We'll be done, and then we'll pick up next week and fill in the last few blanks here. There's a verse reported, or recorded, excuse me, and repeated in verses 10 and 17. Look there, if you will, quickly. Verses 10 and 17. He says, wherefore I was grieved with that generation. It's re- repeated again in verse 17. It describes God's response. Now, we think of grieve representing grief, right? And a sorrow of heart, maybe a sad and heartbroken response. Um, uh, got some news today that just broke my heart and, and uh, just uh, some things and, and, and such. And so we understand what grieving over something is. We understand what heartbroken. That's not what this word means. It's a much stronger word. It literally means a strong feeling of disgust. Uh, that their actions, their lack of belief and faith disgusted God. He, he was literally disgusted with them. And guess what? It invoked his wrath that's what the verses say in verse number 11 here and even in chapter 3 so i swear in my wrath it invoked his wrath okay and they could not then in turn the the consequence was they could not lay claim to the promised inheritance as he puts it here that place of rest look at verse number 11 if you will so I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Look at verse number 18. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that what? Acted in disbelief. They had a hardened heart. They wouldn't take God and live by faith. So they were turned away into the wilderness. Okay, they were turned away into the wilderness. That's verse 19 is what we would call the final verdict. Look at it. So we see that they that could not enter in because of unbelief. Now, okay, we would just sum it up with a statement. We'll be done. Okay, the final verdict is this. The unbelieving children, can I change that on your outline? I don't like the unbelievers because we're talking about, uh, we're we're applying it to saved in a sense. So it's the unbelieving children were left to live unfulfilled in the wilderness of unending regrets. Here's the consequence. In the wilderness, the journey of life, and and not the ultimate place where God wants for his children, certainly in the Christian life and the journey of life, there's a place that God wants us us to reach by living by faith, walking by faith. That's the picture, Canaan is the picture of, and the, the land of promise is the picture of. God doesn't want us to go back in the wilderness where it's a place of unbelief, where we're disbelief, where our hearts are hard and we're not taking God's truth and putting it into our lives and following it. We may be saved, but we're not, we're not really 
living by faith. Can I tell you, that's a miserable place to be. You ask any one of those Jews, and they would say, man, that time in the wilderness, that was the worst. It's not how we want to live. I'll tell you this, it's not how God wanted them to live either. If God had had his way, the nation of Israel would have been in the promised land 40 years earlier. Can I tell you right now, there are Christians who are living defeated lives, who are not walking by faith, whose hearts are hardened to the truths they hear repeatedly. They're not embracing them. They're not acting in obedience and living by faith. And can I tell you, they're not enjoying the victory that God wants them to enjoy. They're not experiencing the promises and the blessings that he has planned for them. All but two of those, that generation of those Israelites died in the wilderness. And God gives us that colorful description of their carcasses falling in the wilderness. Their graves were lasting testimonies to the, don't miss it, danger and disappointment of disbelief. Now, we did not talk about, we'll get into it next week. What about the land of Canaan? I'll give you a little teaser. It does not represent heaven. We'll see what it pictures next week. All right, let's grab our prayer request, Brother Cliff.